Okay. I got the high sign, and that means it's time to go. Uh, well, thank you, and thanks for coming today. Welcome to the American Security Project. Uh, I see some familiar faces in the crowd and some new faces. Uh, for the new faces, the American Security Project, we're a nonpartisan national security think tank, almost 15 years old now, uh, have been doing the whole range of national security issues. Um, but we've been doing the climate change and security and climate migration in particular uh, for a long time. You know, I went back on our, our website uh, this morning and we, we actually hosted a screening of a movie called Climate Refugees back in 2009. Uh, and uh, one of our board members, Admiral Lee Gunn, is, is, is on there uh, discussing the issues. And interesting to see him 10 years ago. Uh, talking about a lot of the same things, but uh, unfortunately, I think I think the issue has only become more salient and, and problematic in the time since then. Uh, before I introduce our, our speakers uh, and, and we get started, I, I want to give a, kind of a few notes and set the scene a little bit here on uh, what we're talking about when we say climate migration, climate refugees, and and, and all of that. And I think it, it, we have to start with a strictly defining, because uh, people migrate for many reasons, uh, whether it's you know, to get a better job, uh, or to flee persecution, or to flee uh, extreme weather events. Uh, we must clearly delineate between refugees who are forced to move because of climate change and people who move for economic reasons, but happen to come from a warm climate. Uh, you know, and an interesting, there was a, a World Bank study last year recently found that, that, that actually far, we think of this as, as only a cross-borders issue, um, but far more people move within their country's borders when affected by climate-related crises, um, mostly from rural to, to urban areas and become internally displaced per persons is the, the technical term. Um, and then there are migrants, uh, those who move from their homes, and there are refugees. And of course, refugees is a legally defined term, and I'm, I'm going to give you the, the UN term for that, uh, UN definition defined as those who are outside their country or nationality or habitual residents and unable to return there owing to serious and indiscriminate threats to life, physical integrity, or freedom resulting from generalized violence or events seriously disturbing public order. And I think there's cases to be made that, that climate can impact uh, those, you know, can, can in, impact the public order. We've, we've made that case for many years here. Um, and of course, once you're defined as a refugee, you're given certain rights. Among those are, are the right to asylum, right of return, right of non-refoulement, which is Basically, that you're not forced to return to a dangerous place and right of family reunification. But of course, at this point, there's no legally binding term to a climate refugee. So climate refugees are not afforded any rights. Climate migrants, you know, they're not given any, any rights in the, in the international order. Um, so a lot of people I've talked to, and, and I, I contend that we need to figure out an internationally agreed standard for climate refugees. Uh, but then how, how would you determine that? Who would count? Those who are affected by areas of rising sea levels would seem to be obvious. But does that mean somebody who has lost their home from rising sea levels, or somebody whose groundwater has been uh, salinated or somebody uh, who, whose home intermittently floods. Uh, difficult to say. Droughts, hurricanes, obviously it's challenging and, and will become even more challenging as the problem continues. So do we have to do some sort of new international regime, rewrite the 1951 Geneva Conventions? I don't know. Uh, it, it's an open question. And there, there's kind of three possible tracks. One is you could extend them the same status as political refugees. That's a challenge. Uh, two, there's a new, create a new regime. Or three, uh, just continue to muddle through as we do under current legal structures. None of them are, are good and, and easy uh, directions. But the, the truth is, is that the numbers are increasing uh, and will likely only increase significantly more. I'm not going to throw around numbers. You see, you know, 50 million, 500 million. 
um, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's almost impossible to say. Uh, but what I will say is that, that the number of refugees is already at the largest number uh, since the post-war World War II era. Uh, and adding climate change to that existing thing is only making that worse and will continue to make it worse. Now, that's enough, enough for me. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll hear today from, from two of great voices on, on this subject and, and many others. Um, first to my right, General Munir Uzman. Uh, we are lucky to have him here. Uh, he's the president of the Bangladesh Institute for Peace and Security Studies. He's been a leading voice on the threat of climate change and national security for years. I think we first met 10, 11, 12 years ago or something like that, <laughs> talking about these issues. Um, he's been raising the threat of, of climate change around the world, using his experience uh, in Bangladesh as a, as a really clarion call. Uh, I know I saw uh, Sheikh Hasina, your, your prime minister, was in Munich this weekend talking about climate change as a threat to national security. So, so clearly uh, what he's done and, and others like him have, has really raised this up, the, the issue ladder. Um, and then General Cheney, uh, our CEO, has also raised the threats of climate change all around the country uh, and around the world uh, in, in, to audiences as varying as a Pittsburgh VFW hall uh, to the British Houses of Parliament, to next week he'll be on the battleship North Carolina down in, uh, Williams, uh, in Wilmington, uh, North Carolina. So if, if anybody wants to make the trip down there and hear that, it should be a, a good, uh, good event. Uh, both of them have over 30 years of experience in, in their country's militaries. And actually, both as artillerymen, I think we, we learned right. that a couple of years ago. We lend <laughs> dignity to what would otherwise be a vulgar brawl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and with that, I'll, I'll over to you, Munir. Uh, glad to have you here. Uh, you know, open to, to your your thoughts on, on your experience in uh, Bangladesh and what, what we should expect in, in this era of climate migra climate migration, climate refugees, and wh what's next. Thank you for, for being here. Thank you, Andrew, for the introduction. And Jill Cheney, it's a pleasure to be here. Back to ASP where we first started the journey to talk about climate change and security. One of the first organizations globally who raised the issue of climate change and security, and now it is recognized by the United Nations Security Council as an international security issue. So we continue to raise the issue wherever we can, because this is something that faces not one country, not one people, but everybody everywhere. But talking more specifically about climate change and migration, what I would like to say that climate change is the future of migration. This is where the migrants are going to come from. We have known all other forms of migration and refugees, but this will be the, the source of major flows of migration in the world. What Andrew was trying to say just before this is that we have definitions internationally accepted norms and definitions of all kinds of other migrants and refugees except for climate refugees. And I'll be candid with you, the reason we don't have is because no nation wants to take on the international obligation that comes with an internationally accepted status for the kinds of refugees and migrants that we have. So I think we are in a state of denial and the state of denial is going to cost us heavily in the future. It is much better for us to accept the reality of the future of migration and find out ways and means and mechanisms to cope with them. So I will just briefly mention a few points that comes to my mind. One of the biggest impacts of climate change is going to be human displacement of people. And the human displacement of peoples will be driven by some major factors, which will be sea level rise, extreme weather events and disasters, it'll be drought, it'll be water scarcity, flooding, high and extreme temperatures, and the likes of those, all are which directly related to impacts of climate change. It also will lead to both 
internally displaced migrants and externally displaced migrants. We will have temporary migration and we will also have permanent migration. Coupled with that, we will also have secondary drivers of migration. And the secondary drivers of migration are again directly linked to the impacts of climate change. And they will be mostly in the form of health, health hazards. It will come from livelihood security issues. It will come from food security issues. It will come from lack of pastoral lands for tribes and groups that depend on the herds of animals and cattle. It will be linked to erratic cycles of rain and monsoon. It will be linked to erotic flows of water in our rivers and many more. I could say that the direct and the secondary impacts of climate change will have devastating impacts and effects on people's lives, on their habitation and the way they want to lead their life. We are already seeing the signs of outbound migration within the country, within the region, for example, in the Sahel region of North Africa, where a number of people are getting displaced, are on the move. In Chad, for example, 500,000 people have been displaced since 2012, and many more thousands are on the line. Because in Chad, 80% of the people live on agriculture and subsistence cultivation and food production. All those people's lives are now threatened due to impacts of climate change in that region. Globally, in 2008, 20 million people were displaced due to climate change related issues, particularly disasters. And now it is indicated by, not only estimate, by sheer calculations and numbers that 26 million people get displaced annually due to climate change related events, disasters and impacts. By 2050, the numbers will go above 250 million people that will become climate refugees or migrants in the world. But one of the biggest impacts that is going to come, that I would like to flag here, is going to come from sea level rise. The sea is rising. I don't need to explain the reasons why, they, why it is rising. But we all know that it is man-made. It is due to impacts of climate change. And the impacts of sea level rise is going to impact many, many low-lying states, areas, and cities. We all know that something like 56% of the global population lives within 37 miles of the sea. So we basically all live on the coast. We don't live in the hinterland. Three-fourths of our mega cities are all on the sea. So just imagine the kind of impacts that sea level rise is going to have. It will displace large centers of population. I'm particularly worried about the impact that will be triggered out of impact of the mega city inundations. And when I talk of mega cities, we sometimes tend to forget in our usual assurance of the lifestyle that we have been accustomed to, how vulnerable they are. Cities like Mumbai, Shanghai, New York, London, I could go on naming all the big cities which, on which we depend for our financial well-being, for our communication hubs, for everything else are extremely vulnerable to the impacts of sea level rise. A calculation was done on 
impact of three financial centers if it was to be impacted just for a period of seven days. It will not only have an impact on the city, it will send shock waves in the international financial centers. If the Shanghai Stock Exchange is shut down for seven days due to a climate change event, if the New York Stock Exchanges are shut down for a period of time, or a Mumbai Stock Exchange is shut down for seven days, it will jeopardize the very financial system which is extremely interconnected. The other area that will be also very negatively impacted are our port facilities. Because in the interconnectedness of our trade and economy, many of these ports completely feed us with everything from our trade to our food to our security, to the movement of our ships, to the movement of our military vessels. Everything depends on some of the key centers of shipping. And they are all vulnerable. General Cheney has seen this firsthand. He'll explain to you. Many of your naval facilities in the United States are extremely vulnerable. They probably have to be shifted or something drastic has to be done if they are to be kept operational, which I'm sure the general will explain to you. So in terms of the displacement of large areas of habitation and population on the sea coasts, in terms of the large megacities on which the international system, the financial system completely depend, the, some of the major port systems on which our supply chain management is completely based are extremely vulnerable. And they are vulnerable to the point that we could face a mega crisis any day. I was asked to go and come and brief the UN Security Council last year on the impacts of sea level rise. And I can tell you that most of us are not aware of this because what I told the council horrified them because it will completely destabilize the international system that, on which we are based. Let me come down to the impacts of sea level rise and, and climate change in my own country, for example. A one meter sea level rise in south of Bangladesh will entail a loss of 20% of Bangladesh's territory. A country of the size of Bangladesh, which has the world's highest density of population, a 20% loss of territory will mean, according to the Bangladesh's government's country strategy paper, it will create a climate refugee population of 25 million people. According to independent estimates, the numbers will be as high as 30 to 35 million people. These numbers are staggering. The world has not been able to cope with a few thousand Syrian refugees who tried to reach the shores of Europe. It almost destabilized the internal political systems in many of the countries in Eastern Europe and Western Europe. Imagine when millions of people are on the move. And those numbers of climate migrants originating from one single country cannot be absorbed within the space and the boundary of that country internally. So this will be all cases of transboundary migration. And when transboundary migration happen in such large numbers, it's not a question of human security, it's a question of hard state security. So it's a question that will impact not only on human security domain, but it will impact on hard security state-to-state -state security. That has grave consequences for international stability and security. I would also like to mention here that instead of solving the problem, we are creating problem. Because in the case of Bangladesh, the border that we share on three sides with our neighbor India has been fenced, completely fenced. 4,500 kilometers of border has been totally fenced unilaterally by India, hoping, I'm sure, someday to stop this outflow of migration as one of the objectives. 
But this is not the way to solve problem. Because when people try to find safety and go to higher and drier land, they will cross anywhere, whether it's a fence or a hill, whatever. So the question is not to have divisions amongst us. The question is to have find out common solutions to a common problem. And that's with the way we have to go. There are also issues of low-lying states and island states that need to be addressed in terms of migration. For example, the state of Maldives will completely disappear. So if you haven't taken a holiday there, it's time to go. <laughs> because it will not be there a couple of years from now. And I can tell you it's a beautiful place to go. So that's one case. The island states of the Pacific will completely disappear, a number of them. But there, I'm not worried about the numbers because the numbers are very small. It's not like Bangladesh because ma many of the island states in the Pacific, the population is 20,000, 40,000. In some places, the maximum is about 80,000. So it is possible to resettle them. It is possible, numerically possible. But we are coming up with very, very unknown questions in uncharted waters, which we are not addressing now. I'll just give you an example of two, three examples. What happens to the sovereign right over the waters where these countries and islands once existed? Do they become international waters? Or the still the state, the state which existed once retains its sovereign rights over those water with obligations? The second thing that will become highly, highly problematic is the complete maritime regime that we have built on the unclosed system will be completely thrown out of the window because even the shifting baselines of our shores will jeopardize the maritime boundary regime. Here we are not only talking about shifting baselines and shorelines, we are talking about a complete island vanishing altogether. So the whole maritime boundary regime that we have built on UNCLOS Will be completely geopolitized. And we have got to work again from square one to rebuild that. We will also be questioning about the legal, the social obligations that the state once had. Who is going to look after those? We are also questioning about the cultural heritage, the social and the linguistic heritage that we lost with these countries. So we are moving into very uncharted waters, and we are probably, again, in a state of denial. We are not addressing them. I would also like to mention here about a report that has come out last week from ISIMOD. It's an international organization that works on mountains based in Nepal, Kathmandu. It has scientifically given a report that the ice caps in the Himalayan, which is known as the other pole, is melting rapidly, much faster than the previous scientific reports that were done, even by IPCC. And they're predicting that in the run-up to the melting, what is going to happen is that it is going to increase the flooding in the South Asian region, which will be followed by long periods of drought, Many of the major river system in that area, the Ganges Basin area, the Meghna Basin area, these major rivers will become seasonal rivers when that happens. We've also come across, due to erosion of land and deforestation in the hill areas of the Himalayas, thousands of artificial lakes have been formed with very uncertain banking bank conditions. So when we have this extra water that is coming down now due to extra melting of the ice caps, it is very, very likely that many of these artificial lakes will burst. So we are seeing the possibility, real possibility of what is being called GLOF or glacial lake outburst flooding. And when that happens, countries downstream will not have flood, but they'll have tsunamis because the water will come down 
in speeds which are not flood-like, they are tsunami-like. So many millions of people's lives in that area is at risk and nobody knows the solution. 80% of the global poor in the areas that I'm talking about live on subsistence agriculture. And with that kind of erratic water patterns, I'm afraid that many people's food security is going to be impacted in a manner that they probably have to move. There'll be no other choice for them. And when that happens, a number of things are very likely that will happen is we'll have social and political destabilizations. We could have food rights. We could have internal conflicts for between groups and tribes fighting for scarce resources. We could also have, as I said in the case of outbound migration, regional and international security issues. We have seen that practically happening in Syria, for example. It has now been empirically proven that the very seeds of the Syrian civil war was sown by climate change impacts because Syria went through a very prolonged period of drought and that forced people in the countryside to move to the urban areas in search of work and food. So that was a powder keg waiting to have somebody to ignite and regional international powers use the situation to ignite that into a civil war and that has gone on for the last seven years now. So climate change impacts to migration in some cases is not linear. It is non-linear. But you have to draw the right links, right dots and connect them to see how they impact into outbound migration. So let's talk about in last one minute what should be done. We need international regimes to work out the possible impacts of climate change, refugees and migration, so that we have a common understanding of the solutions that we should be looking for. We need more food, water, nutrition, sustainable agriculture and food management. Something that has to be altered to the needs and requirements of a climate change impacted world. We need more people that have to be depending on resilient livelihood. We need solutions to environmental degradation and particularly moving towards climate change adaptation. In the end, I would like to say that these are global problems that will need global solutions. These are civilizational problems that is to be addressed by the global humanity as people, not as a country. And that's the only way to find salvation. Thank you all very much. Thank you. General, <laughs> General Munir, thank you. Uh, General Cheney, over to you. And, and I'm already taking lists of, of questions and, and <laughs> thoughts and everything. Lots, lots to think about in there. And, and over to you, Steve. I'll try not to take all your time as... Uh, Henry VIII told many of his wives, I won't keep you very long. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> General Munir Azman, it's such a delight to have you back with us. Um, I've known him for 10 years plus. Uh, Andrew, when you mentioned that we were formed in 2005, I, I wince a little bit because I've been on the board since 2006 at ASP. And one of the founding precepts behind ASP was uh, we were talking about climate change and nuclear proliferation uh, that the founders, Hegel, Kerry, Hart, and Rudman thought maybe we could put some military folks onto the board, uh, specifically two from each service, three and four star, recently retired, and let them talk about these issues, taking it entirely out of the political context and talk the security perspective on it. And these gents and women uh, were all security experts in their own fields and, and could address these topics. And I'm proud to say many of them still remain on our board today. Um, I came on as the CEO in 2011 and have been talking this issue specifically, climate change and security and now migration uh, since then. 
we're in great demand. Uh, you can go on our website and see the talks that we've given worldwide. Yes, I am the guy that sat in Berlin about a year and a half ago and said, if you think you've got a migration problem or immigration problem today, wait 20 years when you get 20 or 30 million that are going to roll up from the Sahel into Europe, then you're going to have a real problem. And it's interesting when you travel through Europe and you talk to them, um, they look at us and they say, you know, I don't think you really get it because we're really impacted here and we're seeing it on a daily basis, not as much as you do in the United States. So we've been ringing that bell ever since, and I've been on the road all the time. In fact, as Andrew mentioned, we'll be out next week in uh, North Carolina, and then we'll go to Seattle the week after that. Uh, I'll be in Maine the week after that at the invite of all those places uh, to talk this specific issue. Uh, let me thank Andrew, uh, our Chief Operating Officer, and Esther Babson, our Director for Climate Security, for one, recognizing the opportunity when they realized that General Munir Osman was going to be in town and, and nailed you to come down and, and talk, because it's just a delight to me to hear somebody who lives daily with the threat of climate change and migration. And when you look at the statistics that you quote on Bangladesh, uh, I, I don't know how any denier can stand up and say, oh, it's not happening. I mean, in your country, it's real, it's happening, it's there today, and you've got to start planning for it right now. Um, you recognize that, and, and again, he comes from the military side from a not political perspective on this. He's talking the security perspective on it. Uh, and he can give you example after example after example of why climate change is causing sea level rise and how that's impacting his country and how you're going to have migration all over Southeast Asia uh, that we had better plan for. In that perspective, uh, when you reach the flag officer level, uh, in any service, you become a strategic planner. And, and you start looking long-term in terms of where is conflict going to occur and what can we do about that conflict and how do we plan for it. I'll give you an example. In the Navy, when they plan to build a, an aircraft carrier, you're talking a lifespan of 40 to 50 years for that carrier. So they're trying to think 30, 40, 50 years down the pike, what are, what are going to be our needs on the security side of the house and where is conflict going to arise? And General Mooney Rosman pointed out several examples here uh, that the United States is looking at long term. Now, the Department of Defense has waxed and waned on its uh, forceful uh, iteration of what climate change is going to impact. It's, it's diminished a little bit in the latest national security strategy. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm convinced that those at the upper echelons of the Defense Department do understand it uh, and are also looking long term and planning for what's going to cause the problems in climate change. I usually break it down into strategic and tactical side, and I won't get sidetracked too much on this level. On the tactical side, it does, where does it impact our bases and stations? You mentioned uh, our bases and our, our bases like Norfolk. Norfolk's going underwater. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's, it's got a dual problem. The land is sinking and the, air, and the water is rising. Uh, they know it. They understand it. Uh, the problem is what are they going to do about it? They've got to do something. Navy's got another problem with its base out in Diego Garcia, which will go underwater. Uh, so there's a Marines brigade's worth of equipment on Diego Garcia. Long term, 10 years down the pike, they're going to have to move it somewhere. Uh, and we're planning that on all our bases and stations. Now, I personally come back, come from a recruit training and recruiting background. My last command was Paris Island. Paris Island's going to build a seawall. Paris Island's going underwater. Uh, I just read the other day, I'm sure you've all seen it, the oldest naval station in the country, naval station here in Washington, D.C., is going to build a seawall. Uh, they're going underwater. My own alma mater, the Naval Academy, is going to have to up its own seawall because they're going underwater. I mean, it's real. It's happening. The DOD is planning on the tactical side to protect its establishment now. And long term, as General Mooney Rosman said, they're going to have to move them. I mean, Norfolk's going to have to go somewhere. They're going to have to adjust to it. We're going down to North Carolina next week. I've been down there several times preaching this specific issue. Um, they have a unique problem there. With, particularly with catastrophic weather and hurricanes. Florence, if you follow the news lately, now the Marines are claiming $3.5 billion worth of damage to Camp Lejeune and the housing establishment there that they're going to need military construction money for. Um, and as I've preached many, many a time, you better be aware of what's going to happen here and you better be planning on it long term. We evacuated Paris Island in 1999 for Hurricane Floyd. They evacuated it again this year. For, started to evacuate for Florence when Florence turned and went up into uh, North Carolina. They partially evacuated Lejeune. They didn't ev evacuate it entirely, but they've got 
a huge infrastructure problem at Camp Lejeune. Uh, that's the tactical side. Strategically, and General Moody Rosman pointed out several of these. When you look at Lake Chad, it's, it's kind of an go Google When you go home tonight, Google Lake Chad, and it'll show you the amount of Lake Chad has dried up since 1990. It's upwards of 80 to 90 percent. And those people that were dependent on the lake for all kinds of things, fishing not the least of which, had to move. And one of the organizations that took most advantage of that was Boko Haram. Where there's instability, the insurgents will come in. You mentioned Syria, uh, the largest drought they've had in their history from 2006, 2011. Uh, I know everybody in this room is familiar with Aleppo, perhaps for a different reason. Um, but what happened was all your farmers couldn't farm in Syria, so they all moved to the metropolis side of the house. Many moved to uh, Aleppo. They became a huge target for ISIS. And uh, of course, they were bombed incessantly by Assad. So uh, that was a uh, threat multiplier to stability uh, in Syria in particular. And that's what we always like to say here at ASP, that climate change in itself doesn't necessarily cause the conflict, but it will be a multiplier that will contribute to it. And the Arab Spring is, is but another example. Um, so we've been beating this drum for quite a while. And the migration side of the house, people just can't get their hands around and grip what a catastrophe that this is going to be, particularly, of course, in Bangladesh. And I, I, I don't take this the wrong way, General, but they're the poster child. They're the ones on the milk carton. That this is going to be a hum, a, just a tremendous problem in Southeast Asia. And where the United States has to plan for this, as was once said by the combatant commander in the Pacific Command, that long term he's looking at this instability and said climate change is causing it. And he says climate change is the number one threat to stability in Southeast Asia. And he was laughed about, and this is Admiral Locklear, uh, because he made those comments, but when you look at how he was looking at it strategically 10, 20, 50 years out, he knew that it was going to cause huge migration problems. And then you compound that with catastrophic weather. Look at Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines, highest recorded wind speed of any typhoon or hurricane ever, 8,000 people killed. We sent 12,000 soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines to the rescue effort of Typhoon Haiyan. And you might say, why did we do that? Really, because one, it was a humanitarian gesture. And secondly, we're the only country could, that could ever move that amount of people in, in that amount of time and do that uh, amount of effort. Uh, but he foresaw that that's going to continue to occur, and it will continue to occur. There's going to be more catastrophic weather. There's going to be more people moving. Uh, there's going to be more instability. So with that, I'm, one last thank you to Matthew Wallen, who's my fellow for public, public diplomacy, who dual hats is running our office and, and setting this up. So Matthew, thank you for the work that you do. And, and again, General Munoz Rosman, it's such a pleasure to have you here that uh, I could listen to you for the next two hours. I mean, and I, I would hope that those in the audience would recognize. Uh, I, I remember it was a year or two ago when we had a snowstorm like we're going to have tonight, and Senator Inhofe ran out and made a snowball and took it out on the, on the floor of the Senate and said, this is, this is climate change. Well, you want to really, you know, he was, he was facetious, obviously, in it. But General, when you look at what's happening in Bangladesh, it's proof positive that we've got to do something about it. And of course, you're adapting, but long term, we need to mitigate. And the way to do that, of course, is eliminate CO2 emissions. But that's a whole other side of the story. So with that, I'll turn it back to Andrew for a couple of questions and maybe a Q&A. Yeah, I'm going to open it out to, to questions of the audience here in a little bit. But I, I'm going to start, uh, take the moderator's privilege for, for a couple uh, here. You know, m both of you mentioned Syria. And, and, and I think rightfully so. It is, um, it, it's a great example of when we talk about threat multiplier. Uh, but I'd note also when we talk about refugees and migrants, the, the problem, uh, as we see it, as we say, there was a drought and it drove the farmers and the herders off of their land in the Euphrates River valleys in, into the cities. Now, those refugees, those migrants, were not afforded any sort of protection, either by their own government or by the international, you know, international authority, international uh, community. Uh, and that was in 2010. Then it took the Assad regime to start shooting at them in 2011, 12, and 13 uh, for them to be recognized as refugees to get protection in, when they crossed the border into Jordan, and then in 2015, when the, the vast refugee uh, 
you know, columns started going up into Europe and you saw a million refugees, for instance, resettled into Germany in 2015. Most of them were, were Syrian. Couldn't we have, is, is, is there a lesson here that, that maybe if we had been a little more foresighted in 2010 as an international community and seen some of this coming and given some protection to the people that we could have, if not stopped the problem, really, you know, what, what's the opposite of threat multiplier? Threat, you know, minimize the threats, reduce the threats. Is there, is there a lesson for looking at it through this lens? And, and you know, as, as continued refugee crisis, Rohingya in, in your region, General Munir, uh, you know, how is the, these, we keep getting caught flat-footed flat by these refugee crises, and, you know, perhaps we shouldn't. Perhaps we should plan these better. But that's exactly what I'm saying, yeah. is that we are in a state of denial. We've got to accept the problem. Only when you accept the problem that you can do foresee and forecasting and foreplanning. Uh, the general and I, we've been trained, it's ingrained into our blood that nothing can be done on an ad hoc basis. They've all got to be planned ahead. And we are way behind in our planning. We know the facts that they're coming, but we are doing nothing about it. We need to raise the awareness of the people who take decisions. In Syria, for example, when the farmers came to the town and asked for food, they were given bullets. So there were others waiting to welcome them into their own, own camps and do something otherwise. So we've got to understand the problem in its nature. And then we have got to plan ahead. We are not doing it at all at the moment. We know the flashpoints. We know where the refugees are going to come from, from North Africa, from Sahel. We know the vanishing island cases. We know other flashpoints. I've just seen today a statistics that a study was done in the United States, and it says that 3.9 million people will come from Central America alone. And where will they go? They will all join the caravan. So let's think about this problem and try and solve it instead of being in a state of denial. And that's exactly where the international community is now. And here, national governments also have to be very, very aware of the situation because international community cannot help a problem when it is brewing up inside except providing them humanitarian aid. In case of Assad, that is exactly the case. He should have realized the problem that is coming. In case of Cyclone Nargis in Myanmar, in spite of the international appeal, Myanmar did not accept international aid, where people are suffering. So our inter internal movement of people has to be something that national governments have to take, take care of with support of humanitarian support from international community. But they cannot go and solve their problem. A couple questions in the back. I think we have a mic coming around. So please wait for the microphone to, to come, because we are filming it. Uh, so let's see. I think I, think I saw a Sir in the back. And then, then we'll take a couple, because we're running. Well, we've got enough time. But, We'll, we'll, sir, and then, then the woman next to you. Okay. Um, Leif Rosenberger, um, former um, professor of economics at the Army War College and uh, was chief economist at CENTCOM and PACOM. And frankly, I've been on this issue for a long time as well as you folks. And uh, I totally buy everything that has been said uh, about what a huge threat climate change is. What disturbs me the most, frankly, is as a movement afoot uh, led by people like President Trump, who sees it as a hoax. And instead of moving towards shared prosperity and addressing threats to you know, humanity in general, there seems to be a movement toward economic nationalism, not just the United States, but you see this happening in Europe as well. Uh, I think we have to address that straight ahead before we can hope to mobilize any real effort. Thank you. And just, then, well, well, I just want to come yeah, in here. Yeah, go ahead. Professor, I completely agree with what you said. And 
I think this is one of the weaknesses of human nature where leadership will matter. I want to share with you very briefly an experience that we had of a climate war game that we played. This was a game that was uh, designed by the British Foreign Office and it was a multinational war game being played on climate change security and particularly on migration. You know what was the reaction of the people? Because so they were divided into the regional grouping, Europe, Asia, and African. So on the African group, when I went and sat there, and a picture was painted that both people are coming in hundreds and thousands due to climate change impacts from Africa and other places trying to reach Europe. The solution of the group was we will go out to the sea and do controlled genocide. So that is exactly how weird people could be thinking. Because when threats come, it makes people think in a very weird manner in times, unless there is very conscious, very far-thinking leadership available to educate them. And that's where we are again failing. We need to tell the people that we are in the boat together, Either we sell together or we'll all drown together. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Lee, uh, <clears throat> uh, we try at ASP to take the politics out of it where best we can. It's really, really tough with the incumbent administration. Um, and when you look back on the Paris Accord, of course, uh, Trump's first official act was pulling out of the Paris Accord, uh, which we supported staying in it, obviously, and then you had COP23 and COP24, the Conference of Parties, which we also support here. But um, trying, to, trying to take the politics out of it really becomes difficult. But what we have seen at ASP is uh, when you travel to other states and other cities, just get outside the beltway, that our opinion is the states and the cities get it better than our national government does, particularly the one that's in in power today, and, and we see that all over the place in, in, uh, in places that you wouldn't expect it. For instance, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, Three Rivers is flooding. They've, they've got problems with uh, uh, climate change there. Uh, the mayor gets it. Uh, we understand that. Uh, you know, I mentioned North Carolina's got unique problems, but I can walk all the way around the country, and we've been to not all the states, but a lot of them, um, and they and they get it, and they see that it's the You'd say it's the not-in-my-backyard syndrome. Well, it's in their backyard. And those that are seeing it, California forest fires, for instance, droughts uh, that are far more common, sea level rise in Florida, um, those people are starting to get it, and, and that's where I think we're going to make the change. Clearly, with this administration, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult issue. We keep trying to push it. Uh, we did on the Hill here a couple of months ago or last year uh, with the Defense Authorization Act, trying to get it written into, the, into it. And of course, the DOD responded, didn't even include the Marines on the list of bases that they had that were impacted by climate change. So they kind of blew that off, which disappointed us greatly. But we're going to continue to work that side of the house. So we, I think there's a little bit of daylight here. Um, we just keep pushing that issue. I see a lot of questions. So we're going to take three here. And so, ma'am. Ma'am, and then ma'am. You want to do them in, in succession? Group them all we'll together. Take three in succession, and then yeah. we'll we'll uh, we'll go. Cluster so. of threes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Bethlehem from CDS Center for Development and Strategy, and uh, my question is um, sort of the response response measures and the discourse surrounding uh, climate effects have mostly been reactive and um, humanitarian aid, and how do we um, manage the consequences? whereas less focus have been on adaptation and resilience, um, and especially from where I'm from, East Africa. Um, recurrent droughts are a big problem, and there's less emphasis on helping communities um, adapt to uh, varying weathers of, or loss of cattle and very simple things that affect vulnerable communities. So how do we sort of shift the conversation from framing it as um, in 20 years we'll have... Um, half of Sub-Saharan Africa moved to another uh, area. Um, how do we shift from this kind of framing to um, pro more proactive uh, measures? Like how do we help communities build sustainable lifestyles that is climate friendly? Um, 
Thank you. That's one. And then, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And then we'll, we'll come up here. So proactive versus reactive. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Maureen Coates. I'm the former Acting Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Installations, Environment, Logistics, and I'm um, delighted with the conversation here. Regarding the regimes and some of the other things mentioned by the General, um, one of the great gaps, and perhaps General Cheney will back me up on this, we do not register air, land, and water capacity as part of the components required for operating. In other words, we don't say that in order to run a, a wing or a fleet, we know we need right now a million gallons a day or two million gallons a day or whatever, or to produce enough food for a county or a state in Bangladesh. We know we need this much acreage and this much water, and therefore we have no baselines, and therefore when there are changes, we cannot articulate or communicate the changes or do the predictive analysis or come up with the kinds of communication strategies and knowledge sharing that you are describing because we simply will not treat air, land, and water as co-equal components of infrastructure systems with physical infrastructure. Now, I don't know if that's because of the labor theory of value and because men didn't make it, it can't possibly be valuable or something like that. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, until these assets are inventoried, appraised, indexed against output and therefore part of productivity measurements, you're really not going to get anybody to notice that they're not there anymore. Now, we had a nice little problem with that called encroachment about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when the military woke up and started to realize it didn't have enough air, land, and water. Now, some of that was because other people were using it, and some of it was because the sea got a vote and started taking it away. <laughs> but, but the fact of the matter is we do not have a co-equal, non-discriminatory attitude toward air, land, and water that lets us do what you're describing. And I would offer that that's the first regime change you might want. Thanks, Maureen. Then we'll come up to the front here. We'll, and then then we'll, we'll respond to these. Hi, my name is Lydia Cardone. I work with Conservation International. Um, thank you to ASP for hosting this really engaging discussion. Um, it's been really interesting to me coming from an um, environmental perspective to see or to understand um, that the military community has been thinking about these issues for a really long time. Um, and similar to the young lady in the background, I'm really interested in um, kind of the, the mitigation and adaptation strategies that are taking place right now versus, um, you know, kind of this forward planning um, that is going to be taking place. And I'm, I'm curious... Um, what the defense community is doing right now in terms of engaging with um, researchers or um, NGOs or, you know, kind of the, the softer side of the security equation on addressing these challenges right now. Thank you. Uh, it's actually great. We did three and they were, all the questions <coughs> were about planning and uh, foresight. You know, I couldn't have planned those questions better. So, so thank you. Uh, it, it, questions about, the first question was about uh, reactive versus proactive, how to, uh, you know, adaptation and resilience. Second question was about, you know, planning for capacity of, of installations. And, and third was about how to, how to plan and uh, work with local communities and, and NGOs and that sort of thing. I'd say on, on the final. The, the, on the, uh, uh, on the, the first question, especially when we're talking about Africa, it's, it's really not a problem of Africa's making. When you look at the major polluters in the world, which are China, United States, and India, um, of course, India and China are signatories to the Paris Accord, and we have subsequently pulled out. Um, so long term, of course, uh, the mitigation side of it is eliminate CO2. And now everybody's looked at the Green New Deal that was put on the, on the floor the other day, and, and I have mixed emotions about it. I guess the bottom line is any time the issue is at least brought up in a positive context, then that's, that's a good thing. It at least raises the issue. Of course, if it gets put on the floor of the Senate up to vote, and they'll probably vote against it, uh, that, that's not necessarily a good thing, but it'll at least make people think about it long term. Um, and and you're, you're right. You can, I mentioned all the naval bases and stations that are adapting left and right here, um, but what are we doing in terms of mitigation long term? and, of course, elimination of CO2, and, and there are many ways to do that. And we're, we at ASP are an all-the-above type organization. We support all of them. 
you know, whether it's a carbon tax or uh, alternative energies or whatever, we, we support all, virtually all of those. Uh, on, Lee, on your second question, you're, you're spot on. I, I look at the Marine Corps that takes over the Naval Station at Miramar in smack in the middle of a huge metropolis. And you talk about encroachment, the people in La Jolla are going nuts about the F-35. We didn't want to think to move that to Lemoore or 29 Palms or anywhere else. And it, got, it gets mixed into politics. Anytime you have a base anywhere, that senator or congressman is going to do everything in their power to not lose that base. Look at Eglin Air Force Base. I mean, that was virtually destroyed. <clears throat> and you get their comment, well, we're going to rebuild it. Really? And Tindall. go through this all over again, I suppose. Tyndall. Uh, Tyndall. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you just go, you know, how, how, how can we continue to do this? Uh, it gets wrapped into politics very quickly. But you're spot on on talking about uh, air, land, and water. That, that, that ought to be the major consideration. But I, I look at the Air Force. We went out to Nellis Air Force Base and looked at the solar array they've got out there, which is fantastic. Uh, you know, and this net zero program that the Army's had, which is also a, a very good program, we're all based. The net zero program is where they will uh, generate more electricity than they than they will use, and in fact, in the long run, run sell it back, uh, which I wish I had at, at Paris Island. Uh, and then the last question on on DoD, um, again with the political leadership that they've got at the Department of Defense today and the cleansing of even the words climate change from virtually every document is, to us is, is just sad. Um, we, I used to spend a fair amount of time in the Pentagon and over at the Department of State. That's kind of dried up. Uh, I would hope sooner or later that effort would change and they'd work more with NGOs that are doing this type of stuff, nonprofits that are studying it. Uh, we've got uh, Admiral Dave Titley up at uh, Penn State University who's been on this issue forever. He, he ought to be a resource that they tap routinely about the impacts of climate change. He's a meteorologist. I mean, he knows it backwards and forwards. So uh, sadly, it's, it's not raised to the level that we would expect it to be, and it's diminished in the last couple of years. Uh, to the first question, uh, I completely agree that we need to follow the path of adaptation or resilience building, but that is an ongoing process in most places. But in spite of the adaptation or resilience that we're trying to build, some of the consequences cannot be stopped now. We are way behind stopping some of the consequences. So for those consequences, we need to be prepared and ready. So we have to have multi-pronged approach where we have resilience building, capacity building, we have adaptation, we have mitigation, at the same time, we need to prepare for consequences. We not only need to prepare for consequences, we need to prepare what I call consequences of consequences. So it's a difficult job. And Madam, I completely agree with what you said, but we probably, everywhere, not only in the military, we're accustomed to infinite resources of nature. <laughs> so we never thought of these issues. I think. You are absolutely spot on that we need to factor them in. On the third question, the, it is not a military problem. That has to be very, very clear. And although we are raising the security concerns, but there should be no effort to militarize this because it is far too big for the military to handle. It is a multi-stakeholder approach that the state has to take where the states all machineries and agencies of the state has to be involved, in which the military is a comp component. I certainly believe what you said, that the NGOs, the civil society organizations, the CSOs, community-based organizations, far more than NGOs, have got tremendous resource and capacity. I'm telling in, in a lot of places that we probably have to go back to some of our traditional ways of living, in many of our societies and communities, in a way to urbanize ourselves without understanding. We have gone away from some of the root knowledge that we once had. So we've got to go back and ignite those knowledge in the communities, in the tribes, in the traditional knowledge that once we had, and perhaps go back and utilize them again. And don't have to do a carbon copy of urban planning everywhere in the world. 
We need specific solutions to specific problems of particular areas where the NGOs and the CSOs will play a very, very important role. You know, when they do um, major exercises <coughs> in the Pacific region, uh, they now include uh, a humanitarian assistance disaster response part of that, that exercise. And a lot of those is just about building the connections with the local NGOs, the local community organizations, so that, hey, could, this was a lesson learned from Haiyan, was so that you don't have to spend the first couple of days just figuring out who to talk to when a typhoon hits or when an earthquake happens or something like that. But that then you can, you can start from day one being able to deliver aid and figure out where it needs to go and who, who the, the right stakeholders are. It's tremendously important, and, and I hope that they, they're not dropping this in some sort of misguided you know, anti-climate sense. I, I don't get a sense that they are, uh, because it's so obvious uh, as a way to, to, to get it done and, and do it right. Um, we've come up to our, our one-hour limit here. It's 3 o'clock. Uh, thank you all for, for coming, and, and thanks for watching online for those who are. Uh, we, uh, we're going to continue this conversation. If you, want, if you have further questions, I'm sure uh, me and our panelists would be happy to answer them offline. Uh, otherwise, look for a, a write-up on our website, americansecurityproject.org. Uh, we'll also have the video up there, and, and we'll be sharing that around. Continue the conversation on, on Twitter at, at AmSecProject, or uh, I know all three of us are also on Twitter, too. You can find that. Uh, so thank you, and, and thanks to our, our panelists here for having us. Okay.